from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 27, Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla. Hello, G-fans and kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Nathan Marchand. And I'm Brian Scherschel. And this week, we're continuing on our Heisei series leg of our Godzilla journey with 1994's Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla, or as I like to call it, Godzilla vs. the Giant Christmas Ornament. <laughs> I think both of us have some interesting thoughts on this one, and everyone, we have a great program planned for you today. I actually watched this movie three times within the past week, because I, I wanted to find everything that I could in this. And so, we'll, we'll see how we do. Yeah, this should be interesting. And just to let you listeners know, if I sound a little bit different today, it's because I'm nursing a little bit of a cold. My my throat's a little bit scratchy, so this week it's my turn to be chomping down on cough drops all the time. And I hope you'll be able to muscle through that just like we're going to muscle through this movie. (laughs) Our related topic for this episode is the Senkaku Islands dispute. All right, Brian, with that, let's get everyone caught up with the important facts on this film with part one. Take it away. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is a force of nature. His primary drives are to protect little Godzilla and his territory. Space Godzilla is a malevolent mutation from outer space. He comes to Earth to defeat Godzilla and dominate the planet. Mogura, or the Mobile Operations Godzilla Universal Expert Robot Aerotype, is a giant robot created and piloted by the United Nations Godzilla Countermeasures Center, or the UNGCC, to kill Godzilla, but is instead used to combat Space Godzilla. Little Godzilla, Godzilla's adopted son, is a playful young kaiju who is helpless against Space Godzilla. Mickey Segusa, a military psychic, is sent by the Counter-G Bureau as part of Project T, which aims to control Godzilla with telepathy. She objects to this because she sympathizes with Godzilla. Lieutenant Koji Shinjo, a dutiful G-Force officer and Mickey's love interest, is assigned to help initiate Project T, and later protects Mickey and pilots Mogura. Major Akira Yuki is a G-Force soldier with a long-standing vendetta against Godzilla for killing his best friend. He intends to avenge him by firing a blood coagulant bullet into Godzilla. The kaiju and human plots are unified, as is usually the case in the Heisei series, and only on rare occasions do they diverge. Almost everything the humans do is at least indirectly connected to the monsters. While the JSDF and the UNGCC briefly think Godzilla is a threat and attack him, Space Godzilla is the real enemy. Mogura is launched into space and intercepts Space Godzilla in an asteroid belt, but is quickly defeated. Godzilla battles Space Godzilla on Birth Island only to be wounded and have his son caged in crystal. Mogura battles Space Godzilla again in Fukuoka but is outmatched. The problem is solved when Godzilla joins Mogura, who splits into two vehicles to help him destroy Fukuoka Tower, which Space Godzilla uses as an energy conduit. The robot then destroys the space monster's shoulder crystals, depowering the creature, and Godzilla kills him. Hiroshi Kashiwabara's script for this film is a complex and overstuffed story with several subplots and many characters, much of which contribute little to the overall narrative. 
Like the previous film, this was given a budget of 1 billion yen, or about $10.3 million. Special effects director Koichi Kawakita continued using traditional tokusatsu techniques, suitmation, miniatures, animations, etc., although at points it seems his ambition exceeded his resources. The suits for all the monsters are well designed and executed, Space Godzilla in particular stands out, but the miniature sets look less convincing in distance shots. Mogura's vehicle forms, Star Falcon and Land Mogura, are improvements over the mecha from the previous film. Overall, it features some of the best and worst special effects of the Heisei era. This has the lightest tone of any film in the Heisei series. However, it presents events with some gravitas. It's quite fantastical for a film embracing many sci-fi concepts. This isn't an experimental film since it utilizes many plot elements from past Godzilla films, space monsters, characters with preternatural powers, and cute creatures, among others. The film reinforces the style of 1961's Mothra with its high level of fantasy and light tone. It also reinforces the style of Son of Godzilla by featuring a Minia-like Godzilla. It also has shades of 1964's Dogura the Space Monster and Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster because it has an alien kaiju. The film was released to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the franchise. Director Kensho Yamashita and screenwriter Hiroshi Kashiwabara, while not new to the kaiju genre, were known for making teen idol films, so they crafted an intentionally lighter Godzilla movie to appeal to young people. The inclusion of the chibi-styled little Godzilla and the cameos by Mothra and the Cosmos were appeals to both children and women. Though the film made money, ticket sales continued a downward trend since 1992. When released in Japan December 10, 1994, it sold 3.4 million tickets and grossed 1.65 billion yen, or about $20 million. It was released on VHS in the U.S. by TriStar Pictures in 1999, and subsequently on DVD in 2002 and Blu-ray in 2014. It's received mixed reviews from the fanbase, but it is the lowest-rated movie in the Heisei series. Once again, aside from adding English text and deleting the credits, the dubbed version is the same as the Japanese cut. TriStar restored the credits for the Blu-ray release. There are many forces at play in this film. The UNGCC continues to utilize futuristic technology to create giant robots and other weapons to kill Godzilla. Its latest effort, Project T, seeks not to kill but control Godzilla using telepathy, which creates a dilemma for Mickey since she sympathizes with Godzilla. The Yakuza learn of Project T and kidnap Mickey to gain control of Godzilla. The Cosmos warn Mickey about Space Godzilla's coming in the form of Fairy Mothra. Humanity learns to trust the normally destructive Godzilla to defend Earth against Space Godzilla, a monster more malevolent than himself. Yuki is hell-bent on vengeance against Godzilla, but after fighting by the kaiju's side against Space Godzilla, he thinks Godzilla isn't so bad after all. Mickey decides that Godzilla, as a creature with feelings of his own, shouldn't be manipulated when she removes the Project T receiver from his neck. Koji tells Mickey it would be good to think about other things besides Godzilla, such as love. In other words, have a life outside of work. Godzilla fights to protect his son like any good father would. There's a stated theme that humanity should not pollute space. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast will be our opinion and discussion of the film in this episode. So, Brian, what's your take on this one? This isn't really one of the movies that I watch a lot. I just decided to watch it a lot this week because I wanted to give this one enough exposure time just because I'm not, this isn't one of the ones I just select out of the 30 or so films that there are. And I was like, oh yeah, I'll watch Space Godzilla. I think we'll be able to tackle this movie just fine because I think 
there is something for everybody. Overall, I think it's a mixed bag, depending on what you like out of what there is. It's kind of like there is a buffet of buffet of stuff, and if you if you're not into if you're into just one thing, then maybe this isn't for you. <laughs> I guess. What do you think? For a long time, I just kind of thought of Space Godzilla as it's there, it's a thing that exists. It's an entry in the franchise. I didn't think it was anything that interesting or special. And then my most recent rewatching, my mind changed a little bit on that. (laughs) It's not just that it's there anymore. And I think calling it a buffet would really be an accurate description. When watching this movie, it's a bit of a, the story isn't much of a ride, but the, the, the ride that the movie is emotionally or maybe just psychologically is it's a bit of a roller coaster just because it like with, with with what you're seeing on the screen, the, the, the feelings that I was thinking as I was watching this, when I see the special effects, I was like, Oh, that was okay. That was pretty good. Hey, that's pretty good. Oh, my brain hurts. (laughs) That one was bad. Okay, let's see. Oh, that's a back to we're back to okay, back and forth, up and down, and we don't know where we're going. I felt the that way about the story in this one as well. <laughs> oh yeah, but before we get to what we have issues with, let's first get through what we like about this because there are some a lot of points where I actually like this movie and or want to like this movie. You know what I really like in this movie, Mickey. Yes, Megumi Odaka as Miki Sagusa. Yes, uh, she was, I think, one of my biggest likes about this movie. She actually gets top billing, finally, (laughs) in one of these movies. She's maybe not so much the star as the lead in an ensemble cast. Yeah. But still, nonetheless, top build. Yeah, and Miki finally gets to do stuff. Yeah, substantial stuff. doing this stuff in 1989. But better late than never. I think this is her best role in, in, any, in any of the Godzilla movies. I think this one's the best one. She's actually integral to the story. She moves the plot along, the, both in terms of story and the themes. Yeah, she's in the driver's seat for telling us also a lot of it, but about telling us what we should be thinking is, is a lot of that that comes through with her. Yeah, and I wonder if maybe in some ways she's almost a surrogate for the audience because she's sympathetic toward Godzilla, despite the fact that he is a destructive creature. She's kind of speaking to the fans yeah. when she's saying these kinds of things. At about 56.30 through the end of the movie, she does more in one scene than she's done in like all of the 1992 movie. <laughs> And that was when she levitates herself when she's strapped to the bed. <laughs> that was probably one of the, I think that was one of the best moments in the entire movie and probably the best Mickey moment in the entire run that she has. I th- I was thinking that's really clever because she's strapped to a stretcher and the Yakuza guy kicks her over and uses the stretcher as a shield. Now, normally that probably wouldn't give you much protection, but she's stuck on it. So he's got a human shield there. And I thought, why doesn't anyone do this more often in action movies? They could have just had her levitate an apple or, or something stupid. So thankfully, they, they did something that was interesting. And see, that's 
the interesting thing with this one is they really expand on her powers in this. They do. She's she's not only making contact with the uh, the new Shobajin, the Cosmos, which she has done that before. Yeah, she's done that before. But we're, we're now we're taking steps beyond, far beyond that. She's finally made uh, contact psychically with the, another human. She's also uh, performed telekinesis. She can also make Godzilla do things. She can control with Godzilla. the receiver. Yeah. Yes. And she also has the uh, rather handy ability to see through other people's eyes. Yes. And the, the effects with that were pretty good. Mm hmm. And there was uh, there was also a scene early on when she's she's brought to Birth Island as part of Project T. And we have what I have to think is an homage to Son of Godzilla. And the, the girl from that movie, because she goes over and has a nice little moment with little Godzilla. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's he's looking over the, the little uh, sort of hill or whatever it is. And, yeah. And the rock falls, and yeah, she has that moment with him. Yeah. I mean, all she had to do was find a random piece of fruit and throw it into his mouth, and then, you know, <laughs> it would have been a complete remake. But, eh, it's all right. Kind of wish they had done a little bit more with that, but it was nice to see. Moving on from Mickey, though, in general, I like how this movie, it attempts at least to be lighter and have a bit more of a Sekizawan character going on. It doesn't quite reach Sekizawa, but it does It does attempt to, and it attempts to be lighter because up to now, because since we're seeing these chronologically, this is rather welcome to try to come back to something like this after three or four movies now where we really haven't had much of this. No, I think the closest we've come to is probably uh, Godzilla versus Mothra 92, which at least had some humor in it. Yes. Th- that was attempting to be Sekizawa too, but within all of the, the Godzilla versus the Mothra versus Godzilla sort of flavor. I think this is different. Yeah, most definitely. And I think that comes from the background that the screenwriter and the director had making teen idol movies you can that definitely factors into how they shoot this and and the the tone and the sort of story that they're telling yes because we don't have omori in this one no and we also don't have the the aping of the american movies either and instead we we get something different that takes up the so-called extra 15 minutes of this (laughs) of this of this movie because i i'm a stickler about saying that kaiju movies are their greatest at 90 minutes Exactly. But they needed to do something like this at, uh, by now, because the next movie that we have isn't like this. No, it's going back. It's going back to more of the regular Heisei. Yeah, it's more attitude, more the uh, true to form Heisei sort of movie. Yeah. And so if this if this entry hadn't been made at this time in 1994, along with the rest of these Heisei movies, th- there would have been a like a piece of the pie missing. In our in our in our attempt to be complete with the the sort of Godzilla franchise experience, there there would be a hole. There'd be miss, stuff would be missing. The scene that encapsulates the style of this movie in a nutshell is uh, it's about forty seven minutes in. It's between Mickey and Koji, and they're standing on the beach with a Birth Island, and the sun is setting, and they're having a a nice little chat and. <laughs> It's it's almost like the movie's a bit self-aware because Koji tells Mickey, can we talk about something other than Godzilla, like love? 
because <laughs> it's almost like the movie itself is acknowledging yeah these heisei movies are very godzilla centric it's, it's reflecting on itself yeah i think yeah but the way it's shot is is uh, that scene in particular is so different than anything else it's you can really see that the different sensibilities are coming through i think in that a one. lot of the scenes with mickey are like that yeah i it's interesting how this director chooses to film Megumi Odaka in this. Uh-huh. A lot of soft, warm lighting and and such. The a big focus on her, especially, and it's it, you can tell that yeah, this guy's used to working with you know celebrities, I guess you could say, and making movies centered around them. I do like what that scene is trying to do. I'll put it that way. Yeah. I, probably doesn't quite get there i will admit but i do think it's a worthy effort i like the music in this movie it's a very interesting soundtrack it really stands out it's very ethereal just like with everything else this is needed this is something that was necessary i don't i think that if we just had ifukube 24 7 we'd be missing something because in the show series we had sato and we had all of his really good music I felt like in in some ways this the music in this one had some shades of James Horner in it, particularly his uh, his Star Trek soundtracks. That's what I was thinking of when I was listening to it. It actually made me reminded me more of I think some of the TV shows that I've seen. That mm. that is, it sort of sounds like that made for TV movie sort of music. <laughs> it's not as it's not very epic no. most of the time, but it, but like the Space Godzilla theme is pretty good. That, that's that's when it gets more tense and um, appropriate. <laughs> Did you notice Yuki had his own little theme too? He does. <laughs> the little drum beat, kind of tribal drum beat thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought it was just going to be a one-time thing, but then every time he's skulking around with his rifle to shoot Godzilla, it's like, oh, there's his theme song again. <laughs> Getting back to the scene by the beach with Mickey, I, the music during that scene is actually quite good too. Mm-hmm. The opening credits for this movie is interesting. It reminded me a bit of uh, the opening to the show Doctor Who, since it's out in space and has all the the funky effects going on because you have this thing from another world coming at you. Flying through outer space, hurtling through the... Yep. And the music kind of went with that as well. Yeah, it does. You probably disagree with me on this, but I actually... As weird as... It kind of is. I actually kind of like Little Godzilla, the design. I think he looks better than Minya because Minya looks very weird and ugly. And the at 1967, least 1967, 1969. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Minya looks kind looks of weird and ugly, uh-huh. but this one, it's chibi style, so it's genuinely cute. He kind of sticks out like a sore thumb, <laughs> especially when you look at the other two forms that he takes in his maturation. From the previous movie and in the next one? He just forms a number of times throughout these movies. (laughs) Yeah. But he was much easier to stomach than Minya. So I will give him credit for that. They're trying to do the Minya thing again, but he's much easier to deal with. I like how Space Godzilla's roar sounds. I'm also glad that it is not a reuse of like a Rodan noise or any of the other kind of noises that we hear lately but th- this actually is unique and it sounds good i also like the ray the, or the beam that that comes up with space godzilla it's really flashy it's, it's 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 like a whip 
Yeah. It flies through the air like a like a whip and it just like snaps back at stuff. Yeah, since we're on the on the subject of Space Godzilla, there's a lot of I- interesting design choices that they went with with Space Godzilla. Did you ever play the video game Super Godzilla on the Super Nintendo? Yes, I did. Space Godzilla looks a lot like the Super Godzilla form that Godzilla takes in that yeah, game. Does. And it's because it was des- uh, they were designed by the same guy. I read that online because, you know, with the big shoulder things and such. But if you notice, there's actually, even though they present two theories as to Space Godzilla's origin, which is, you know, either it was G-cells taken up by Mothra or it was bits of Bialante. It seems like the filmmakers are leaning more toward the Bialante theory because there's some little designs that they put into Space Godzilla that call back to... Bialante, like the the little teeth on the side of his mouth. The teeth are similar, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you, you know, the, the reason I bring it up is uh, you brought up the roar. The roar actually sounds a little bit like Bialante's. Yeah. So uh, some little things like that, and I also it would make more sense to me that it would be bits of Bialante because what happens when Bialante shows up at the end of her movie? She wants to fight Godzilla. Take him out because of the same creature. Oh yeah, but it's like this instinctive thing. So it would make sense that Space Godzilla would just come back operating on the same instincts. So that's why I honestly think the the Bialante theory makes more sense. And also, Space Godzilla, besides his ray, has quite an assortment of powers. He's kind of ridiculous. (laughs) He can do telekinesis. He has shields. He's he's nuts. He's probably one of Godzilla's most powerful opponents. It has a lot of bells and whistles. And since he's a space monster, you can just go crazy with all these different ideas. I know. That's what's really interesting. They didn't do the space origin with Ghidorah, but now they actually have their own space monster in this. Yeah. <laughs> I think this actually has a pretty pretty cool entrance for, uh, for Godzilla. On this Birth one. Island. On Birth Island, about 23 minutes in. When he comes out of the water and the, they they play the Afuka Bay march because it's kind of tradition, even at this point, even when Afuka Bay's not scoring the movie, they use the theme because you it, should. You have to. Mm-hmm. And the effects for that are done pretty well. The, the rest of the music that they play for it is pretty good. And you know, you've got all the characters scrambling to do the things that they're supposed to be doing, you know, doing the project. And that's actually was pretty cool, too, because you had two sets of characters trying to shoot Godzilla with something, but with two very different Purposes. objectives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those were running parallel, which I thought was I thought that was pretty cool. Exactly. One hour in. One thing that I really like is the cop and the guy fishing. And that was that was good. The, going for the sort of Sekizawan humor there, mm-hmm. and, and I like the the way that the cop says what he says, and then he 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 notices it, and it's, that's a good that's a good moment. And I think you, you need something like that to to if you're going for a lighter tone, then that's something that you really want to do. At about one hour, two minutes, and forty five seconds in, that starts the scenes with Fukuoka getting obliterated. And that has actually actual buildings being blown apart. It looks really good. One of the better uh, special effects moments. It actually is one of the best in the Heisei series, maybe. Yeah, I would certainly rank it as one of the best destruction scenes in the Heisei era. Also, the sea battle 
that occurs when Godzilla is fighting all the all the naval vessels. That looks really good. It was very brief, but it had it what had was a punch. In there was great. Yeah, it had it a punch. Have done twice that much, uh, just because it, they they were on a roll. Godzilla's entrance at one hour and five minutes in, when he starts going through Kyushu in order to get to Fukuoka to see Space Godzilla, that also looks quite good. A really good one, also that's last for me, is also the exploding crystals flying horizontally through the air, exploding. And then Godzilla uses his atomic breath and blows some of them up as they're flying at him. Yeah. That's a lot of explosions. I like that part. Yeah, that was that, that's probably one of the more unique attacks that I've seen a Godzilla foe use. Because they're, they're like literal... Darts. Yeah, they're darts. Yeah, they're literal projectiles that he's using with his telekinesis to hurl at Godzilla. It's very nice. I have a couple more myself that I'll bring up. I, I thought that... Overall, the at least in terms of the special effects, the stuff that they did with Mogura was an improvement over the previous movie. I liked watching the the robot split into the two pieces. I thought that was executed better than what they had done with the Garuda in the previous film. I've never really been a fan of Garuda, so I'd agree with you there. Yeah, and I I, I like the the set for the for the cockpit in Mogura. I thought that was pretty well designed. And it's good they did do it that way because they spend quite a bit of time in there. Yeah, they do. they're driving they do. it around and flying it around. And I feel like this. the climax for this movie was really long. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's about half an hour, it felt like. So, yeah, we spend a lot of time in that cockpit. <laughs> and and apparently Mogura is kind of like the Enterprise D because they have two different bridges <laughs> for each yeah, section. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With that, uh, l- let's move on to some of the problems that we had. <laughs> we'll, we'll start with with a general big problems. I, perhaps the largest sin of this is the lack of focus. This movie can't decide what story it wants to tell. I feel like we have about three different ones crammed together. And one of the, the whole project it's T like thing. like sideways. Yeah. Yeah. The whole Project T thing is important for about the first 30 minutes, and then it's dropped almost entirely for the rest of the movie. That could have been a whole story unto itself. Then you have the the Yakuza subplot that was completely extraneous and could have been cut and nothing would have been missed. I think what the movie thinks is that the main focus of the movie, the main plot, is Space Monster. Space Monster is coming. We need to do something about it. But then there's all this other stuff. That's unrelated. It, it goes off the track at, at, at various points. Or like the Yakuza thing was a cul-de-sac. And I thought, well, why did you drive that way? You, you, you should have just drove to the destination. But instead we, we, and it's almost like this movie can't decide what to show us sometimes. Like it's, it's unclear as to what should be on the screen and what, should, what we should be looking at. Along with this is the dialogue. I, I, I have problems <laughs> with a lot of these Heisei movies with the dialogue just not quite being there. They should have done a second second stab at it. Get another writer or just have the writer go home and sleep and come back, not drink any coffee, reread everything through. Because the, the, there is a pretty stunning lack of focus, but the, also the dialogue is, is at times rather cringeworthy. I, I, just like we said in, the, in our likes about this, I like the, the attempt at the beach scene. However, the, the beach scene is, it almost, this, this, that scene almost exemplifies this movie. 
it's just that it doesn't even have the space monster in it but they're trying but they're they're just not hitting it and, and like the beach scene the dialogue is just so awkward is one of the most awkward conversations i've ever had with this the music's there they they got the music right they got the location mostly right they got the well the camera angles not so much right mm. the the in that scene they zoom in on her and then she says nothing and then it goes back to the two of them and then it goes back to her and then she kind of makes this pained expression and then it goes back to the two of them again and it's like you don't do you know how to film one of these scenes there's a certain way to film some of these scenes just like there's a certain way that you film a kaiju movie and i don't know if this movie does either of those things at times there are times where yeah it's okay here we go this is good but then there are too many moments where you go and it's like whoa why is the camera pointed this way it's almost like there's there's so many different angles that you never see in movies that are in this one i don't oh i really hate to mention battlefield earth but you know how they, oh, did, all the, you know how oh, they did all the yeah the the wipes the little, uh, and, and the tilts everything's uh, all yeah everything's tilted centered <sighs> and and it's like you just you're just doing something for the sake of doing it and maybe this this film the way the, this movie the way that it was filmed was just not it didn't fit into anything. Let me throw this question at you: Does this movie make you miss Omori? Yes and no. I I, I have mixed feelings on that. It's good to have something different, but at the same time, that different didn't quite reach what we what we were hoping. Let's talk about Mogura because this is something that was brought back from a film from 1957, The Mysterians. And at that point, you remember all you you just saw it pretty recently. But yes, it, it was. It, you know what it did? Uh huh. It just beeped and walked around. Uh huh. And that's all it did. It had this little metal pointy. Kind of like a drill. Yeah, on his nose and a little pointy nose is what you, is that's what I look that's what I concentrate on when I look at it. Uh-huh. I look at the little nose sticking out there. So, I don't think this quite works. It's just <laughs> they didn't it's just weird. They also said that they didn't want Mechagodzilla in this because Mechagodzilla was too powerful. So instead thought, who's who's the judge of that? Yeah. Can you have the story determine that too? Or can you you could have just had that again. So they they didn't have to, but I don't know why you resurrect this thing. It's such an odd choice because it's not like the Mogura in Mysterians was the main focus. It's no, in it was a throwaway. one sequence. It's it in was one a throwaway. sequence. Yeah, yeah. Compared to the rest of the movie. I mean, I mean, they used Mo- that version of Mogura in the, the Godzilla NES game, which was kind of weird. But I mean, it's I just another like, monster. I had no idea. What yeah, it was I didn't know either. Uh, but the I just remember having to fight it at every level. Yeah, it's at every level because it's in the beginning and then it's in the first one and then it shows up every <sighs> other time. And then uh, I remember the Trend Masters. Trend Masters made an action figure of this version of Mogura. So I kind of found out of a bit more did. about Mogura here because, yes, obviously, it's just it's such a weird choice to go with this over anything else. They also... They, there's a part when that guy calls Mogura the ultimate anti-Godzilla weapon. I actually <laughs> laughed a little bit. This is the. Mo- they didn't even say what it could do. There wasn't any. There wasn't any of those shots or 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 that moment where you have the audience go look and marvel at the awesomeness of that, whether it's Godzilla or whether it's Space Godzilla. They do that plenty with Space Godzilla. They build up the 
mystique. The, the, yeah, yeah the, there's some atmosphere there. But but Mogro's like, oh, there it is, and let's get in it and drive it somewhere and attack Godzilla or Space Godzilla or both with it. But there's no build up. There's nothing really invested in it. There, there's no beauty shot to use the the Star Trek term. And and also there's no. We could have used a scene that's like a a test scene where they have Mogra at a proving ground and, and there's some, whatever you want to say, like a, a giant rock for it to crush or a building for it to knock down or a ray, something to use the ray on. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Something that they can say, ooh, there's no ooh with this at all. No, I mean, in the previous movie, they at least tried to build some mystique around Mechagodzilla. There was a little bit of awe with him. Mogura gets nothing. There's a part where the two the two sections of Mogura, when they come back together, it's like, snap! And it's really fast. And it's just... And it looks so like, oh. You needed to slow that down so that you could have the... Be like, ooh, isn't that cool, everybody? But instead of just snap, and it all just comes together. <laughs> he does oh. Voltroning very bad. Uh-huh. <laughs> it made it's, me think a little bit of Transformers, even. Uh, yeah. There's only the slightest bit of Pacific Rimness to Mogura. And I thought about Pacific Rim, too. <laughs> it's like, just, wouldn't that have been great if they had thought of um, that kind of a device? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, ah, uh, it's just. Had, have Mickey. <laughs> be the one controlling a Pacific Rim style Ooh, Jaeger. I like this. Have Mickey control Jaeger psychically from the comfort of her own dining room. Yes, there Where you go. <laughs> from the comfort it's, of her living room. It's just, it's so weird that, you know, they say Mechagodzilla is too powerful, we can't have him. So their solution is to make the most useless mech ever. It blows up the two little shoulder pads. And it takes it uh, helps take out Fukuoka, uh-huh. the Fukuoka Tower. Uh-huh. But otherwise, the thing is, the, the thing is useless. The only thing remotely close to a win that this mech scores is that five second skirmish that it has with Godzilla, where he shot at him once, and then they said, "Yuki, you're stupid," and they punch him, and then they just direct the mech elsewhere. So, do you think they could have cut Mogra out of this story and not lost anything? That would. Yeah, affirmative. Mm-hmm. There were a few moments that I actually pressed pause when I was watching this. <laughs> Let's talk about this asteroid scene. Oh my gosh! <laughs> we know. We know. This is the most. Knows what we're talking oh, about. Oh my gosh! This is. This is probably the most infamous special effects scene in the entire franchise. This is when this movie reaches Godzilla versus Megalon territory. It's styrofoam. It's like styrofoam balls. It looks like, it seriously looks like they stole some school kids solar system mobile and threw a couple of monster models into it. I wouldn't have that mobile in my bedroom at any point, no matter what. It's too cheap for even that. They didn't even put stars in the background. It's just completely black. Backgrounds are a problem in this movie in general, especially in our final battle the sky, you know, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I press the, I for, I remember this scene though. I, every time I watched this, that was always the one of the biggest oddities I've ever noticed in a Godzilla movie is that, and it's it's just that's one of those moments in this movie where you just kind of cringe. Oh. 
they're really proud of the motorcycle wheel in the sand shot, aren't they? <laughs> I counted three times that, it, that they did that. You'd know what I'm talking about. On I the think so. Yeah. <laughs> with the motorcycle. Yeah. Okay. I can tell you're proud of that, but we've seen that. We've seen that now. There is one scene that's rather odd and it's when Okubo has Mickey hooked up to the machine and then he just starts messing around with the controls like like a maniac and then she like he makes her short circuit but then they never do anything with that at all later like it was just almost pretty much plopped in there and i don't think really anything consequential came out of it like he he just fried her and then she she was okay but this Kubo guy is bizarre yeah everything with the yakuza stuff what's the deal with him messing around with the computer and acting like a lunatic I, I I don't know. I think uh, Doctor Mofune is looking at him and saying, "Dude, tone it down." I mean, <laughs> yeah, he's like on he's like crawling on top of the table, and, and just acting like a nutcase. And the weird thing is, he he seemed perfectly normal up until that time. Yeah, he up was all stable at the beginning. Yeah, and then he just goes goes full tilt, Looney Tunes, and I just. Like, okay. He turns into a cartoon at that point, and then because Space Godzilla flies over, and then everything blows up. And it's assumed that he's killed then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's going nuts. And all of a sudden he's like, what's happening? And then the whole thing just blows up. <laughs> I <don't... It> just... <laughs> what the crap? <laughs> I don't know. Then at about 4524, we have, we have the American daddy Warbucks or, or <laughs> fat cat or whatever. This balding, heavy white dude in a cigar or in a suit with a cigar. <laughs> and he's, he's like, Everyone is in stunned silence when they're in this little conference talking about Godzilla, and he just blurts out this loudly the, the, these lines. He's like, what are we going to do? <laughs> what? Jeez. <laughs> All the Japanese people are like, whoa. <laughs> Calm down. It's just another apocalyptic monster. I don't see what you're so... <laughs> you, should be, you should be speechless. You shouldn't be upset. This happens every day now. I'm <laughs> And we mentioned this before, but he, him telling her, how come everything's about Godzilla? That is just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they, I, re, I really hope this was something that was meta. Like they weren't just saying this because they had no self-awareness because and that would just be horrible. But yeah. she doubles down on talking about Godzilla all the time. That's what's funny. I know she, he has feelings too. I'm siding with him. And just a, l- a little bit later, also the, the, the uh, G force people are talking about Yuki and they say, all he does is talk about Godzilla. <laughs> and so, it's, it makes you wonder if this is a meta commentary. Yeah. <laughs> meta commentary on the fan base. Do you talk about anything else? Godzilla? No. I mean, do you talk about it? Godzilla? Uh-huh. What about your love life? Godzilla. You know, in other words, your life. I love Godzilla. Uh-huh. Yep. What are we going to do about Godzilla? Uh, what if we went to dinner? Would you change the subject then? What if I bought you something really nice? Would you stop then? And that, uh, something that was, I thought was unneeded, although a little bit funny, I think, was when Space Godzilla shows up in Fukuoka and you have that really hopped up reporter. <laughs> Oh yeah, talking about stuff. She's like, Energetic. "Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Oh, Space Godzilla! He's here! Oh my gosh! The monster's destroying Listen everything!" Sound. Listen to the sound it's making. Oh my gosh! Maybe you should run. <laughs> it's like those reporters that go out into the hurricanes just to tell you, "Oh, the hurricane's here! It's windy." At least she didn't say that she's uh, the Japanese Barbara Walters, like that one guy said that 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, and the Godzilla versus Gator. At least she didn't run around saying that. We've done this before with various Heisei movies, but the whole monster flying over buildings and then small fireworks blow up behind them, stop doing that. It, it doesn't work. It never worked before either. They only did it a couple times in the show movies total. It wasn't very. It wasn't a go-to shot, and now it's a go-to shot in the Heisei movies, and it, it's underwhelming. And I and this time around, I was like, oh, they're setting off little fireworks to welcome Space Godzilla to Fukuoka. <laughs> little fireworks, but I, this stuff doesn't work. Stop doing it. Yeah, uh, I'm. I'm a little more accepting of it here because Space Godzilla has crazy preternatural powers anyway so if anyone's going to magically make things explode under him it would be him but whatever it works better than rodan flying over yeah, stuff that and didn't having make it sense. <laughs> we've also mentioned beam heavy battles oh my gosh the, the lack of physical contact between the enemies oh so I, there's one time one time godzilla and space godzilla make contact and it's they just kind of and when space godzilla falls he sort of falls backwards on his tail yeah or on, on the bottom part of his back yeah and he just he just has to get back up yeah that just really i wouldn't want i guess if you're wearing that suit that's all you can do oh god that's, that's the thing with the, the hasten movies there's not this sumo wrestling dynamic that's just gonna yeah that here. that space godzilla suit is huge and it's bulky i don't envy the actor who was in it yeah and the shoulder parts are gigantic oh geez i bet that wrecked his back it looked heavy yeah and that's probably why he can't move very well and yeah, did yeah, you, you notice that when, when it's 400 pounds yeah i mean and did you notice they they brought a little 70s show a thing back in the fights too godzilla just keeps passing out and falling over during mm-hmm. the fight i was just like you could start a drinking game you brought this trope back i mean it was amusing in the 70s but what <laughs> I know you had this too, but the scene with levitating Godzilla does not work. It doesn't work for you? No. It, okay, here's how you do that scene. Tractor beam him and then throw him headlong into the biggest building that you can find. Nice, quick, clean action. You could have done it in one third of the time that oh. you took to do the, uh, what we have in the movie. It's too long. Yes, we see him levitating. We know you're, the awesome thing to do is catch us off guard. Tractor beam him like, whip, you know, up in the air and then dramatically and quickly launch him into something. I wonder nice if they quick action. I wonder if they would have had the ability to do that. Speed it up. Mm. Do something. You can manipulate the video somehow, but it just is too slow. Not just the action, but just the filming of it. And the filming is just too slow. The the city sets in this are not great. They, that, they here's the key: if you zoom out too much, you're in trouble. Yeah, and that's the biggest problem. I I don't know what it is about this particular era of of Godzilla films, but the city sets don't look as good when they zoom out. And this is the one where you see it the most. It's a very large. Maybe that's the reason. Is because the set was just too detailed and too cumbersome that once you have it all built, you can't move stuff around. It oh. looked like everything was static. Yeah. Which may, which is one thing that makes the final battle rather boring. Well, I'm just, I'm thinking back to destroy all monsters and that massive Tokyo set. It looked amazing, but, but it was practical. Yeah. It was more practical. Yeah. 
And then the sky doesn't help either. It's, it's unrealistic because there's nothing. It's like what? Navy blue background. Yeah. Very uninteresting. And did you notice with the last couple of movies, Godzilla is pretty much resorting to the same sort of way to kill his opponents. He just blows them up with his giant magic ray. Mm-hmm. At least you're not falling into the ocean, but now you're just recycling another thing. Yeah. My last dislike is actually something that happened towards the beginning. And that was the, it was the, it was doing the, you only live twice motif of music, which kind of made sense for the start. It made sense of what we were looking at on the screen. And then they had this annoying boom box. Yeah. And he's dancing like, like a jerk. (laughs) Yeah. He's dancing like a jerk. And I thought, well, if you're going to have that music, why did you have to ruin it? It's It's a a stupid radio. Yeah. (laughs) It's yeah. The music is eerily similar because you showed me the scenes that, uh, that each one of those motifs is from and, it's it's crazy. Pretty much exactly alike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although maybe it was this very oblique homage because it was. You know, because it was. It's well, like Omori uh, only not entirely. Yeah. Well it's scene. also I'm thinking because we had the Princess Salno from Ghidorah was yeah. in You Only Live Twice. Yeah. So Exactly, Akiko Wakabayashi. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The use of Mothra in this, uh, the the Heisei Mothra She's still out in space doing her thing, and she sends little fairies as her emissaries that allow the cosmos to communicate with Mickey so they can warn her about Space Godzilla. Through the earrings, too. Yeah, earrings. I was wondering where those came from. But it's it seems like a very natural thing to connect Mickey to the cosmos. Yeah. You know, these two kind of supernatural characters. It's it's kind of like when we were talking about Ghidorah, how I I had wished that Salno and the Shobajin had more scenes together. But it's something new and it's different. It, we've never seen Mothra do that before. And it makes Mothra even more of a fantasy-based supernatural kaiju. It does. This movie actually has gratuitous nudity. Okay, thank you, movie, for that. Why? Why did we need to do that? <sighs> that that could have been cut too. There was no point to it. It's not funny. It's not sexy. It's not nothing. This definitely wasn't like a Bond movie. No, with, 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 where it had that. And this is just isn't something the Godzilla series does. It's it's technically really family friendly, especially yeah. now with all the stuff that's out. And so it just seems superfluous. Yeah. And it, this isn't the first time there's been nudity in a Godzilla movie, but the other time was in Terror of Mechagodzilla and that was fake. It was foam. It was nothing anybody's not seen that didn't see a department store with a mannequin that was nude. <laughs> yeah. So this guy is the only actor to ever appear nude in a Godzilla movie. That, no, this is not anywhere else. But it just seems... So out of place. <laughs> yeah. I think Yuki has an interesting way that he wants to deal with Godzilla, with that blood coagulant. The reason I think it's interesting is that's what they do to Godzilla and Shin Godzilla. And yes, this a blood coagulant is the exact yeah. same. And method, he, yeah. he, so in this one, he says, I made this myself, the Yuki special, mm-hmm. he calls it. And he, but he, he tries to use it, but he never gets to. But then, we get to Shin Godzilla, and that's exactly what they do. Makes me wonder if Huguchi and Ano saw this and they thought, hey, how about we make that the climax? 
this does this does actually work as a method. It's a good idea. Compared to, I mean, there are a lot of various ideas that everybody's had over the years in these films about how to get rid of Godzilla, and this one's one of the more uh, realistic ones, actually. The actor who plays Akira Yuki, I really like him. He's one of the better characters, but he's also one of the better actors in this. And I, I just, I like his demeanor, and, and I, he knows what he's doing. I really like, I really like how he's how he does this. He really knows how to how, how to play this character with. The, just the right level of badassitude mm-hmm. without being over the top about it. Something else that this movie does first that gets copied in later Godzilla films is the whole vengeance trope. With Yuki, we have a soldier who had a best friend who was killed by Godzilla sometime in the past. In this case, it was in Godzilla versus Biollante. And now he's determined to get revenge on Godzilla. He wants to kill him because of what he did. And we'll see that a couple of times in the, the Millennium series. We also have the lesser of two evils principle with Godzilla and Space Godzilla going on because it's the bit, one of the biggest parts of this movie is about how, well, yeah, we, we don't like Godzilla at all. We want to try to liquidate him in various ways, but we then something else shows up. Godzilla has to fight it away and they end up sometimes even working with Godzilla, which the, they do that in this. I I saw I saw some of the criticisms of this movie and it said how, well, it's just lesser of two of evils. Well, that's been done in Godzilla movies up to now quite a few times. So this isn't something that's new. And I also don't think it's anything necessarily to criticize either, because that's a lot of what happens. And how many movies are there that is Godzilla versus something? Yes. This, this happens an awful lot. And it's just that this movie actually concentrates on the lesser of two evils principle slightly more than... Yeah, Godzilla is not so much an anti-hero as he is a pseudo-hero. You know, he's fighting something that is worse than he is. He just doesn't want the thing that's worse to kill his son or destroy where he, the place where he keeps his stuff. <laughs> Moving on to some of the funny things that we saw in this movie, both um, intentional and unintentional. Definitely unintentionally funny would be the space station being destroyed with the chunks of crystal just bursting through there and everybody reacting to it. I just, it totally didn't work. It was just funny. I was getting flashbacks. It's a crunch. Yeah. And the, the zero G effects were kind of awkward. Yeah. I, for some odd reason, I was getting flashbacks to Star Trek, the motion picture when everyone's calling and saying this evil space cloud, what is it? Oh, it's killing us all. Yeah. It has a certain um, community theater aspect to it. Uh, there's a scene where we're, where we're kind of introduced to Yuki and he comes up uh, behind this guy and he looks like he's going to stab him in the neck, but he actually stabs a spider. Right. And then and then he says, one bite and you would have had it. And then I wrote down on my notes, that's why I'm going to eat him. <laughs> because you know, Yuki is just that badass. <laughs> yeah, he is one of the most stereotypical badasses of any of these Godzilla movies. I love how the Mogura pilots have giant M's on their helmets. <laughs> I yeah. wonder if that was, I mean, it, it doesn't look very obvious, but when I look at it, it's like, that's an M. <laughs> what about the scene where they, they hit Yuki on the head in order to knock him out? <laughs> what was that? That was probably one of the most funnily, unintentionally funny executed scenes 
of, of that kind ever. First off, how do you like you never film it like that? Ever. No, you don't. So you don't funny. film like that because it doesn't even look like anything hit him. It just he just looks like he passes out. No, it's like they had no idea how to film that. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, <laughs> the other thing is, why does anybody ever try to punch somebody when they're wearing a helmet? It's not going to work unless no, you no. actually hit them in the face. In the front, like, yeah, like square in the front of your face. Yeah. I, I, do you notice the uh, the wonderful Apple computer that's there and the monitor? It has it has an emblem on it for Apple, and then there's an extra Apple sticker right next to it. No wonder I uh, Apple computers gets mentioned in the special thanks of the credits. This might be cringeworthy, but it's an Apple II. That's why. Ooh, ouch. And it does. It seems like no matter what the era, if we have a Godzilla offspring character, the filmmakers have to abuse the poor thing because there's that scene when tear gas. Yeah, when little Godzilla <laughs> is springing the uh, Yuki's tear gas mines, and he's like, "Oh my gosh, oh this is so." Oh That's kind of long. That part. <laughs> yeah, they could have made that about half as long as they could have. Yeah, and then later on, we've got space Godzilla bullying him and everything. Yeah. So he's like, "Gap." I bet little Godzilla's running around saying, I wish it was Gabra. I can handle Gabra. Gabra didn't imprison him. So who are these white people that the Yakuza are allied with? Do we even want to know? No. I, I don't think we do. It's like you had to make it an international criminal enterprise. You couldn't have just made it a Yakuza thing. Yeah. How about that scene when they're they're about to put Project T into motion and they put and they put that helmet on Mickey? I'm thinking, did you steal Cerebro from Professor X? Because it, it looks just like it. What is she gonna do? Locate mutants? Locate other kaiju <laughs> with her magic psychic powers? All she needs to do is shave her head, and then you know she could be a female Professor X. At fifty nine thirty eight into the movie. We have that German scientist. He's like, the experiment is complete. <laughs> like, and then, uh, and then Koichi Ueda's like, okay, hangs up the phone. <laughs> like, but, uh, we, we had a Dr. Strangelove moment there. It is. <laughs> the comic book science, the absurd comic book science of Space Godzilla's origin just makes me laugh. Oh, G-Cells got sucked into a black hole and then out a white hole and then vomited out through a white hole and then it combined with the crystalline entity from star trek the next generation to make this unholy abomination like oh my gosh <laughs> yeah it's, it's really going a lot of places and it's like do we really need that where's the scientist where no the the uh the head of the ufo club from <laughs> the original Ghidorah movie we need him to show up and just do this 15 second thing oh well you see that it it got sucked through a time warp or a black hole and and then this happened yeah <laughs> you don't need to explain all the rest of that stuff i'm when suddenly you, when missing it's all pseudoscience it doesn't matter and speaking of pseudoscience i want to go to toho and say you don't tell me this has something to do with the fad of of crystals and, and crystal healing and crystal energy and all that why not? They were all, why not? They were already embracing the psychic fad, fad of the nineties. It is such a wrong thing to do is just to go with the crystals as a fad. If, if they weren't doing it because it's a fad, then it was genius or whatever. <laughs> sure, but if if they were just going with it because oh, you know what's new? Crystals. That, that's that's pretty lame. Well, there's there's a, a potential merchandising there. They can 
sell Space Godzilla crystals. Healing crystals. <laughs> Space Godzilla healing crystals. You notice how the glass, very thin Fukuoka Tower is the hardest building in all of Godzilla history to destroy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really, uh, Satsuma really had to lean into that one. <laughs> Well, yeah, and there was, at one point he was punching up against the glass, presumably glass part of it, and it was like bouncing off, and it looked like plastic. <laughs> I thought, no, you, this you really need to have made this thing out of something resembling glass. Like, get that candy glass with, that they that they use in uh, movies when they break windows and stuff, and, and get that and have the thing just shatter into a million pieces. That would have been better. One thing that is intentionally funny though is that dude with the claw machine yeah that's actually kind of a sekizawa thing to do it is they were attempting to go with sekizawa just like they were doing with the the fisherman and the cop yeah same sort of thing yeah here's some random people that are pretty funny and we're gonna yeah (laughs) i I was thinking to myself this is a interesting new spin on the whole gambling addiction thing because the guy is just trying to get something out of the claw machine. He's like, give me another, give me another, give me another. Oh, I have to get it. It's definitely not a very powerful drug to, to sate that desire. It's just the, using the claw machine. Yeah. I guess you can get really hardcore into that if you want. Uh, I've known some people who did, actually. They, they should have just gone to a casino, but that would have been really too realistic. Yeah, we can't have realism in this in this movie. What are you talking about? But Brian, there's one Heisei tr- uh, trademark that we don't get in this. Mickey doesn't use her her favorite line. Oh, right. She doesn't look and, and then pause for the appropriate few seconds and then says, Godzilla. Yeah, it, it never happened. Could you? Yeah. And it, that, that didn't happen for once. And I guess maybe the, they figured she had enough lines, so they didn't assign that to her this time. Uh, well, but then again, you know, she doesn't get upstaged by another woman in this either. She gets upstaged really. by the monsters. Yeah. <laughs> However, she does get to say... There is a space monster coming. <laughs> Which even even Akiko Wakabayashi in the original Ghidorah had more information than that. She, she said, Ghidorah. Yeah. I think this friend- is not a space monster. Well, can't you be more specific than that? At the ending of this movie, just like I, I said at the ending of part one with Amazingly Not Laughing, was this theme about the space garbage and how if we continue to put refuse into space that it will cause more space monsters <laughs> it's one of the weirdest themes to a Godzilla movie ever it's, it's like it makes the previous film seem really simple with just protect your young <laughs> but but this it's all like okay what are we what are we as as earthlings supposed to do about this problem like pollute less when we visit space <laughs> or pressure our, our governments to stop putting things into the air that, that crash into other things that they put in the air. Apparently we just, just can't don't know how much mileage. Uh, maybe we should just not produce pollution because no matter where we put the stuff, it's going to make monsters. I don't know. Which doesn't even really make sense in this because technically space Godzilla wasn't made by anything the humans threw up there. It was right. The G cells aren't space garbage. No, the G cells were taken up there by monsters. Yeah, the kaiju did it. I mean, are you going to blame us because the humans made the monsters? I don't know. It, but, it's it's so weird. It's like this 
<laughs> out of all of the little moral lessons that they put at the end of these of these movies, this feels the most tacked on. It's like somebody really just, tacked on. And someone's just like, we need something. Um, don't pollute space. And they, you know the phrase, think globally, act locally. Well, how are we supposed to act locally with this? It's space. What are we supposed to do about it? Recycle more? I think we made our point. <laughs> this concludes part two of the podcast. On to related topics. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, we cover an issue that was either brought up by the movie or was going on in Japan at the time the movie was released. So for this episode, we chose the Senkaku Islands dispute, and this is uh, definitely one of the biggest hot spots on Earth right now. It is a very dangerous uh, situation, and it is uh, very tense. Though the Senkaku Islands uh, dispute has been around for a while, really since uh, the big argument started in the early 1970s, there weren't actual incidents that started occurring until the 1990s regarding this dispute. And since the 1990s, it has been only warming up and getting worse since then. There's only been one direction that this thing has been going. First, let's talk about where the Senkaku Islands are. What we have is that these islands are at the very towards the very bottom of uh, the south end of where Japan's territory ends. And so you have Taiwan that's off the coast of China and then to the east and sort of to the northeast of Taiwan uh, that is where you have Yayama which that is the westernmost point in all of Japanese territory and that's just it's quite close to Taiwan and then North of Yayama, that is where the Senkaku Islands are. It is a very small group of islands. The largest island is, is still not very big. It is uninhabited. And so the, this area that we're talking about is the East China Sea, specifically. Yeah, we're talking about eight islets, totaling about seven square kilometers of territory. And they're not too far from Okinawa, either. Yes, they are west of Okinawa, uh, sort of northeast of Taiwan, and southeast of the Chinese mainland. Yeah. The ownership of the islands has been contested for many years between China, Taiwan, and Japan. And this has been particularly heated since the Ryukyu Islands were reverted back to Japan in the early 1970s, which we talked about in the previous episode. Japan annexed the islands in 1895, determining that they were terra nullius, which means empty lands or unclaimed lands. China, however has documented the islands as far back as 1372 and claims that they ha were incorporated into the Ming and Qing dynasties between which existed between 1644 and, eight, and 1911. Japan says the annexation was unopposed by China, but China has claimed that they were already sovereign Chinese territory. Japan argues that since China didn't make any claims on the islands until the 1970s, it makes their... it proves that their... Uh, claims are are more legitimate but china refuses by saying that they didn't object to the 1895 annexation because they were ceding many islands including taiwan to japan after the sino-chinese war around that time after world war ii as part of the treaty of san francisco which again we talked about in the previous episode the u.s was given sole authority over the islands but china does not recognize the uh, the treaty of san francisco as legitimate and by extension, since they see the Ryukyu reversion of, of 1971 as an outgrowth of that treaty, they don't recognize the, uh, the reversion as legitimate, and that reversion included the Senkaku Islands. 
One reason why there was so much gasoline thrown on the fire with this situation was the United Nations did a survey about energy in the area around the Senkaku Islands and determined that there was plenty of oil in the area. Well, once that occurred, then immediately uh, China began to have a lot of interest in this. At that time, China changed their position on it, and then they claimed the Senkaku Islands for themselves. And something rather interesting is, is that China, especially, but also Taiwan, they tried to round up as many maps as they possibly could that were made in China or Taiwan that referred to the Senkaku Islands as Japanese territory. There was an all-points bulletin put out to get rid of all of these maps as soon as possible because we're totally saying something that the maps aren't backing up. However, some of these maps did not make it to the paper shredder and uh, were able to be saved, and uh, th all of these maps show that uh, Japan has the territory around the Senkakus. Another interesting piece of evidence is the, this letter that was found. That was, it was rescued from a shipwreck in 1920, and it referred to, well, it was written by a Chinese uh, consul, and it referred to the Senkaku Islands, Yayama District, Okinawa Prefecture, the Empire of Japan. And so th that's another piece of evidence that is in Japan's favor. So though this island, when, when you look at it on Google Earth, the main island of the Senkaku is the biggest one, it, it looks like this small little kidney. <laughs> it, it's totally undeveloped, and yet it's so important. So we can talk about why it's important, uh, besides the oil and natural gas reserves that might be under it. Th there's also the fact that it is quite close to Okinawa, which is where a lot of the United States bases are located. So if this island were to be made into a Chinese military outpost, it would be a very significant change to the defense perimeter that the United States has in the island chain. And so this would throw a, a big problem into that. Also, there are fishing resources all around the area. There are shipping lanes that travel near it. And so a lot of this is uh, strategic. It's an it's important strategic location. An, an uninhabited island, as long as it's in the right place, can be a very strategic place. Some of the feelings that are going into this, though, is obvious war memories and conflict going back generations between the Chinese and Japan. There's a lot of emotion in this fight. There's also the, the fact that this is a major political football that, can, that is used by both the Japanese right wing and the more uh, nationalist element of the Chinese Communist Party, which is a big part of that. And so there are a lot of um, very high tensions that are, uh, that are present here. It's a very emotional issue. Nationalism and national pride have really been fueling this dispute quite a bit. Both China and Japan are very hungry for resources, which is why it would be it's understandable why both of them will be going after the what they can find out there in the Senkaku Islands. Japan in particular, because with their changing energy policy over the last few years with shutting down their nuclear power plants and being an island nation, they don't really have any resources to generate power themselves. So all of their energy resources have to be imported to them. On top of that, when you have possession of an island like this, you're also possessing all of the ocean floor below it 
And so you get to expand the national territory. And so that's, that's another reason why that's important. And Japan would be able to do that, and so would China. So, and so China would be able to increase the amount of jurisdiction of their national waters too, which China has been claiming national waters uh, over the entire of the South China Sea. And so that there is a lot of uh, extraterritorial claims that are going on with China at this time. Another incentive for China is if they soften their claims on Senkaku, then it stands to reason that they would have to start softening their claims on a lot of other things, like Taiwan, which is something they've been trying to get back for a long time. And this is all about momentum. And also Japan has other island disputes, one mainly with Russia in the Kuril Islands, and then the other at Lion Court Rocks with South Korea. So if Japan loses this one, then the momentum is not in their favor, and then they could be disfavored in the other two island disputes that Japan is currently going on. Which would be a devastating loss for them, because this is the one of the three that they have the most claim to. Yes, this is their most solid claim in between Kuril Islands, Landcourt Rocks, and Senkaku. Senkaku is definitely the strongest. The onus is on China to prove that they should have this territory just because historically this has been in Japan's favor. And if you had to go to a a court of law, it would most likely be decided for Japan. Right now, the Senkaku Islands are being administrated by Japan, but China does not recognize that at all. Currently, also, the Japanese government owns the islands. And there's an interesting story as to how that actually came about. Uh, This was actually, the islands are actually owned by a private owner, and then... In 2012, Shintaro Ishihara, who was the former governor of Tokyo, he went to the Japanese government and he said that he was going to buy the islands. At that point, the Japanese government came in and they furnished the money to buy the islands instead. For those of you that don't know, Shintaro Ishihara was, is a very big hardliner on this kind of an issue. This is definitely something he was into. Um, and the, this is definitely something that the Japanese right wing uh, finds as a cause celeb for uh, sovereignty, nationalism, and uh, national pride, etc. Ishihara is also one of the authors of The Japan That Can Say No, which we talked about in a previous episode. China obviously did not react to this very well at all. It escalated the conflict in a hugely massive way. Since 2012 especially, there have been a lot of incursions by non-Japanese vessels as well as fighter jets into the area of water and air around the Senkaku Islands. And this has all been uh, like a militaristic provocation, essentially, on behalf of China and sometimes even other nations taking ships into the area as well as having fighter jets deployed to the area, which then necessitates Japan to scramble their fighters in order to uh, show, okay, we're still here. And so this is a very tense game where they are feeling out the weaknesses, trying to find weak spots. And basically, it's the two countries saying, yeah, we're here. And yeah, so are we. Hi. And so it's a it's a very intense, nonviolent so far conflict. But this is one of those areas where really a war could break out. And that's not only because of the tensions between China and Japan, but also the fact that the United States 
though they have a neutral position, they have historically, of course, defended the Japanese claim by basically saying that Japan has much more of an argument for why they should have it in their national territory as opposed to why China should. And tensions between the countries remain high because at one point, as we've been discussing in a lot of our episodes, Japan was a huge economic power, but nowadays they're on more equal footing with, uh, with China. So one tactical miscalculation and the conflict could escalate even into a war. This puts the U.S. in a precarious position because, as Brian mentioned, they have traditionally been more supportive of the Japanese claims on these islands. But they've also made it clear that the Senkaku Islands fall under Article 5 of the U.S.-Japan Defense Treaty, meaning if the conflict does escalate into a war in the Senkaku Islands, it activates the alliance. So the U.S. would then could get involved militarily. Yes, they'd be obligated to. And given that the United States has uh, has maintained a middle ground stance, a, a, a neutrality since the Ryukyu reversion, because their their policy was we will give administrative rights to the islands to the Japanese, but we will not comment on who has sovereignty over it. That's for you two to decide. Like I said, it, it's a very weird position for uh, for the United States to be in. Especially since 2012, the amount of conflict has been quite significant. In 2012, there were Coast Guard vessels from Japan and Taiwan that collided, and then there have also been boats full of activists from uh, various of the three countries that have come on to try to make this more of a situation than it already is. Uh, there have been other shipping collisions. In 2013, there were, was a situation where a Japanese destroyer and a Chinese frigate were very close to each other and that the crew of the Japanese destroyer actually went to battle stations because it was that tense. Along with this, on the home front of each country, both countries have used this as a way to increase national pride, but also there have been a lot of protests. Specifically in China, there were a lot of anti-Japan protests because of this. The Chinese government can use this conflict as a, a big advantage. They have state-controlled media say that Japan is constantly the aggressor, and so this uh, stokes anti-Japanese sentiment, which also uh, gets everybody in China, gets their mind off of the fact of, of what's going on in their own country. And so you have state-controlled media blaring all this stuff. And at the same time in Japan, you have the, the sort of loudspeaker diplomacy of the Japanese right wing. And, and so you have... Uh, problems on both sides with that, with both sides painting each other as the, um, the primary aggressor. Regarding military uh, actions, the Chinese and the Russians have actually taken ships jointly through some of the shipping lanes in the area. This is also related to the, the United States because the United States routinely uh, takes military vessels through the area as a show that they can do that and, and that they're not going to be told not to go certain places because these are viewed as international waters and the United States needs to keep the area clear for Japan and Japanese vessels to be able to go into the area as well. So there have been uh, joint U.S.-Japan military exercises uh, extremely uh, common nowadays where, where the United States and Japan are doing drills and exercises to be able to defend the islands should something happen. This is one of those cases where there could be 
just a small amount of military troops necessary to take control of the Senkakus because they're not very big, but uh, China could move very quickly if it ever needs to, thus the need for extreme readiness. One thing the United States government has done is they have warned commercial airliners about going through the area, and that made us think of another topic that uh, we uh, covered in the Godzilla 1984 episode, The Return of Godzilla, and that was about the shooting down of the South Korean airliner yeah. uh, Flight 007. And that would actually be a, a really big uh, flashpoint if a commercial airliner was destroyed over this area. But I, I'm sure I don't even want to think about that. Probably tend to avoid this area like the plague. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if they have any kind of self, sense of self-preservation. There is an issue with uh, China and Japan attempting to get as much military might in there in that area as possible. Uh, one thing that the Japanese have done is on Yonaguni Island, which is another island that's close to there, is the, the Japanese actually built a radar station there. The Chinese were very upset about that. The Chinese have been trying to take as get as close there militarily as possible with uh, all of the buzzing of the area with the uh, fighter jets. To make a long story short, uh, it doesn't seem like anybody is going to budge in this situation, and it doesn't look like both nations are going to suddenly agree to go to the International Court of Justice and have this resolved. Uh, currently, since Japan bought the islands, nationalized them, that it's in Japan's case, they've they think it's decided, and it's just that China won't recognize any of that, and so it, it is really a, an impasse. It's between the second and third largest economies in the world. And these two countries have had a lot of historical problems. The argument that trade heals wounds might not even apply here. Even between the second and third largest economies in the world, they trade a whole lot. And you'd think that the fact that they're trading and that there's a big volume of trade, you would think that that would somehow reduce the possibility for conflict between these two nations. And actually, I would say that that is not the case with these two nations. Trade does not necessarily make for great diplomacy, and it doesn't make anything as much easier. So th this is uh, perhaps one of the most tense areas in the entire world. Yeah, in... In this case, both countries ha have long memories and deep wounds. I don't think anything's really going to change. There have been some suggestions about how to resolve this issue, but pretty much everyone comes to the same conclusion, which is that the best thing might just be to maintain the status quo. because There's not really much anyone can do. At this point in time, the Chinese government is not interested in going into a war. They believe that it would be a disruption to business and to trade, and to everything. And the fact that the war, potential war between the United States and China would be so utterly devastating and so instant that there's no, uh, there's no incentive to, to make that happen. If anything, that's the reason why there is a holding pattern. And yet we have a lot of muscles being flexed. We have fighters being scrambled constantly and all these military drills. It is uh, very, very difficult. Before we close up shop, how about those economic figures, Brian? Let me show you some charts 
and uh, I'll show you 1994 in a nutshell, we have GDP growth, inflation, and the stock market, the Nikkei 225 index. Do any of these graphs look good? No. No. We have extremely low inflation. We have very low economic growth. And the stock market in 1994 was at another low point, even though we are out of all of the crash. Uh, the, the stock market in Japan is still not doing very well at all. In 1994, the economic growth for Japan was 0.86%. This is definitely because of the country of Japan being in the middle of the lost decade, or at least in some ways it hasn't even really started. And, and so this is, a, this is a long way for Japan to go still. Uh, with some uh, very disappointing uh, numbers, uh, very low inflation as well, which is uh, when it's too low, it's definitely bad. We're at near zero, uh, practically going into deflation. All right, Brian, I think that wraps things up. In our next episode, the Heisei series comes to an end. And spoiler warning, the King of the Monsters dies in Godzilla vs. Destroya. Yes, it's the highest rated film of the Heisei series, and we'll be uh, going out with a bang. See you next time. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. And I'm Brian Scherchel, and I edited this podcast. Sayonara!